If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Shiloh, what are you doing today? Uh, What are you doing today? What am I doing? I am, oh, you know what I did today? For the third time during pandemic, we got a new hamster. So we've been through two. Okay, wait, we have to pull that apart for the third time during. (laughs) Are you raising a serial killer? Am I worried about that now? Okay, so the first one might have been my fault. I'm not sure. Uh, hamsters are terribly disposable. I hate to say that. I'm so sorry. It sounds terrible, but they are not. They're practically one step above goldfish. They really are. I had a gerbil. Don't make any Richard Gere jokes. <laughs> I was going to say, we are but talking I, about Richard Gere today. Gerbils are, gerbils are really sweet. Like gerbils are really, really sweet. But I think yeah. hamsters are kind of just like they're just little lumps. I mean, they don't really do anything, right? They're not social, meaning like you cannot have more than one together in the same cage because they'll go at it. Um, so you can only have one, but they're pretty cool. I mean, they're cute little curious beings. We were thinking about upgrading to a, what's the other one? What's the bigger one? Guinea pig? Guinea pig. Oh, <laughs> guinea pig. You. Have you seen those videos where the guinea pigs... Like are all eating the vegetables and they're coming out of their little hutches. Oh my God. Yes. It's adorable. But they are social. So you should have more than one. And then I don't know, you know, pandemic pet. And yeah, we buried two. First one was hammy. Second one was pickles. And this one is carrot. So let's see how this goes. Carrot. I'm ready for you. You're going to have a zombie salad in that pet cemetery in your backyard. Oh my God. (laughs) oh well hey folks hey folks welcome to la not so confidential we were just catching up yeah please don't talk over me scott please i am going to make every effort to contain my natural exuberance and not talk over (laughs) you because it is disrespectful and i recognize that but you know i think when people comment on that not that it's often (laughs) but i first of all Shiloh is fine. She is not offended by this. I just want to let everybody know. I don't know why I'm talking about myself in the third person. <laughs> but I think Well, Scott I- thinks Shiloh <laughs> should talk about herself in the third person because it's kind of cool. Um, I 
honestly, I see it as like us being connected. And I think people have said like they finish each other's sentences and that's how I kind of see it. Like our friendship of like, okay. oh, like this thing you're talking about, let me jump in and say it. Um, and I feel like I do it just as much as you do. So I don't know. Anyway. Well, okay. I, I appreciate that. I will say this. One of my, one of my dear sisters um, has, has kindly corrected me on it at times. And, and mm-hmm. I, and I appreciate it. I try and take it in. Uh, because I do. And also, you know, on a bigger look, tying this to a psych issue, and it really is a psych issue when it comes to this, is that, you know, part of my journey in becoming a clinician was coming from a space, having these assumptions that I understood the position of a woman in society, and then going into graduate school and realizing, oh, shit, I don't know anything. And being schooled very kindly by a classmate saying, Scott, I really care about you. You don't understand it. I want you to be open to it. And I think you're open to it, but let me, let me instruct you in how you're making some assumptions. That was my amazing, amazing colleague, uh, Felizan Vidad, who's a correctional psychologist. And she's just an amazingly talented clinician. And that stuck with me. There's studies that show that white men especially are acculturated in Western world to dominate conversations. Mm -hmm. And even if they are self-aware and attempt to monitor and regulate themselves, you can put one man in a a conference room with, or a a class with 25 women and just his presence is going to edit what women feel comfortable sharing. And when I, when I became aware of that, I was like, just that's crushing to me. Yeah, I, I, I think that I observe in more recent years that as a culture, we tend to cut each other off. I think it's more of a communication issue these days. And I don't know if that is, you know, because we're so like, our attention span is so short and we got to get in what we're talking about. I really mm. think it's a, a communication issue now I because I find myself doing it to others. Um and really feel like there are not a lot of instances in which myself and the other person are fully listening to each other, you know, just in casual conversation. I'm not talking about like therapy, obviously. Right. Listening very well in therapy, but, um, but yeah, I just feel like that's kind of the norm these days. Well, it's probably also hard to judge anything right now. I just feel like we were talking, you know, you and I were chatting earlier in the day talking about how, when we have to be on for work, we're on, we're getting our job done, but I, but we are sharing this experience also of feeling like brain mush. Yeah. If we don't have to be present, it's really hard. Yeah. And I think that's from a year of, of quarantine and not, not just quarantine of COVID and all the pressures that come with it and being a first responder. And yeah, yeah it's just a lot. It so, is. So let's be kinder to ourselves. <laughs> we will be kinder to ourselves. And, and thank you. I will say this very quickly. The last two reviews that have been left, we got a Patreon review and an, uh, an Apple iTunes review that absolutely brought tears to my eyes because I, I'm so sincere. I'm a very maudlin type of person. I'm easily emotional in these ways. But the fact that people are enjoying what we're doing just means a lot. So thank you folks so much. Yes, yes. So today we are talking about the history of sex work, which is something we have had in the works for a little bit. Yet, you know, we're not a history podcast. So 
why are we talking about this well, <laughs> might no, be some people's questions that probably so i feel like okay there's a there's a reason that we decided to do this and the reason was is because so many times our topic matter circles back around to victims sure. that are working in the sex industry as sex workers or in, mm -hmm. in, in, in industry as sex workers. And we don't have time to do a deep dive into all the factors about why someone chose that particular kind of work and the judgment and the stigma and all that stuff. So in a way we were just kind of carving out some time today to put a historical context on it so that in the future, this is another one of our projects. What we really wanted to do is do a spreadsheet of our episodes so we can tell people, Hey, this episode today is actually related to episode 54, 39, and 22. You might want to go back and review them, or if you have time, just listen to all of middle. It will make your understanding of those crimes a little right. deeper. And this one I think is going to be sort of, of in those. the mix in that way. Yeah. yeah, definitely one of those touchstone episodes, I hope. Right. I I think it was important. It, the way that we came about this was actually very random. And when I get to the source, I'll tell you about the article that kind of sparked this idea, but it made me start thinking about, wow, what, what different facets have sex work, has sex work taken throughout the years? And so I think that's why we landed on looking at a more historical aspect, as well as, of course, you know, we're going to touch on the stigma of sex work because we can't, but you're right. It's a very relevant human rights issue. Yes. It's a public health issue. And just like you said, because sex workers are so often the target of violent crimes that we talk about ad nauseum as a true crime community, you know, too often the headline leads with this descriptor of sex worker or prostitute to lend us to make all sorts of judgments about this victim before we even know anything about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're talking about sex workers as a theme because it can go in so many directions, but we wanted to focus on sort of giving a foundation of the historical aspects and the stigma that you're talking about that yep. is related to sex work. And let us be really upfront. We are not going to be the end all be all of this conversation. We'll be referring you to other things and there'll be some great show notes and I'm sure because our listeners are so fantastic we're going to get a ton of really great resources for that are that are out there that would be specifically psych podcasts that are about sex work and if you have suggestions please send them in oh, we'll, yeah we'll put Love them in our that. show notes folks thank you so much yeah so, I, the majority of my research will be from a really fantastic book it's I listened to it. It's called The Curious History of Sex by Dr. Kate Lister. And she's fantastic and it's cheeky. And it's it's mostly from a UK perspective because that's where she hails from. But it's very good. And um, gosh, just a fun, short read. Is it available? I mean, is, is it like out of print oh, yeah. or in print? You can get no, it. Okay, great. It's very new. It's with, I think it, it might've come out at the beginning of last year. And I, okay. I listened to it. I burned through it on audio a couple of times already. So, well, since you, and since you picked up that um, bit of research, I am referring to some people that, I mean, I guess they're actually my peers, but they were farther along in their academic careers than I was when I first met them. Um, Dr. Julian Koken, Dr. David Bimby and Dr. Jeff Parsons, who was my dissertation advisor. And they have graciously allowed me access to 
um, the chapter of one of their books specifically about sex workers and attitudes towards sex workers. And I saw this presented at a conference at the scientific, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality uh, about 10 years ago. And I, my, my jaw just fell open that someone had done this kind of profound research. So we'll get more into it. I'm going to, I want to give a shout out to them and and yeah. point I everybody mean, to their research because it's amazing stuff. See all the different directions we could go. I mean, yeah. attitudes about sex workers, how, you know, the work impacts the workers themselves. I mean, it's just, it just goes on and on and on. Right. So let's talk about the parameters for today. So we're, we're going to be defining sex work. Uh, we're going to be talking about what activities are we focusing on that are legal versus not legal, but we are just focusing on adults. Yeah. So we will talk in a historical context about child abuse or certainly what would be considered coercive and child abuse today, but from 2000 years ago or even Mm -hmm. 300 years ago. But for the purpose of talking about sex work as a profession, we're talking about adults primarily. We're not talking about human trafficking, use of force, abduction, deception, or any types of uh, coercion for the purpose of sexual exploitation. So that could include also forced labor, slavery, and and even worse things. Right. Um, Human trafficking could yeah. be its own episode as well. Absolutely. And and there are other ones that we would probably refer people to because there are some really in-depth ones on human trafficking that are great. So according to the National Institute of Justice, uh, there was a study conducted in 2008 that found approximately 15 to 20% of men in the country, in the U.S., have engaged in commercial sex. So 15 to 20%. I would actually have assumed more. What do you think? I don't know. I, with these types of studies, you know, when people, there's a lot of shame around it. I always think people are being a little reserved. So I would agree with you. And I'm not sure exactly how the NIJ got those stats or how they defined it, but okay, let's go with 15 to 20%. Okay. Good. Okay. So we have some categories of sex workers that we'll be sort of referring to. They're adults who receive money or goods, possibly even services in exchange for the service of consensual sex or erotic performances, either on a regular basis or just occasionally. So, and if anybody's out there that has a more updated version of this term, please let us know. We are not attempting to be dismissive in using this but we have a term called street prostitution as opposed to indoor prostitution or sex work. Even the term prostitution itself, we're really trying to stay away from because it is a loaded stigmatizing term. It is not used in our community anymore. However, that's only a recent change. And we're, we're referring to research that's over 10 years old. And when we're talking about it, we're talking about the crime of prostitution, like what you would find in the penal code, what, how that's categorized. Um, and of course, again, just like our last episode, we're using the term sex worker unless historically we're referring to something more specific. And then we might use the term prostitute. But when we say right. prostitution, we're talking about like the act that is criminalized on the books. Right. So street prostitution being uh, call girls for a, a change of terminology or erotic dancers versus cam girls or strippers. Mm-hmm. And then adult porn performers, and I use that quote loosely, it was like we would just call them adult 
adult film, adult video actors or adult film stars is a, a less stigmatizing term. Yeah. So um, all, all of those things, you know, from those um, spectrums of street prostitution to call girl, you know, we think uh, high class call girl, right? That's kind of the term at the other end of the spectrum or from dancers to cam girls, all that falls under the definition you gave us of exchange for sexual services or erotic performances that's the umbrella of sex work that we're talking about and interesting like even as you say that think about the the terms that we just kind of toss off like we call girl doesn't really isn't as loaded but when we say high class call girl as opposed uh-huh. to what as right. a clo- as opposed to low class because you're indicating yeah. and it's just it's, it's fascinating that once you start to be aware of how powerful language is mm-hmm. you realize that these terms can be so loaded and so marginalizing Um, there, let me give a quick overview of the legality in around the world. Um, and it varies widely. So in 2000, the European union allowed prostitution itself, the exchange of sex for money, but it prohibits associated activities such as brothels and pimping. Um, it really varies a lot in European countries, like in Sweden, it's illegal to buy sex, but not to sell it. Okay. So <laughs> I'm not, sink in. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure. I, that's interesting. I'm sure there's a reason for it. Hold on. Sure. This is the coolest thing. Dan just like literally handed me a diet Coke. Oh my He's gosh. like the best ever. Oh, Dan is your personal assistant. No. Oh, if I had said that, I'll never get a, get a drink handed to me again. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. So, well, it's, it's legal in parts of Australia and all of New Zealand in Japan. It is legal with the exception of heterosexual vaginal intercourse. Right. Another one. Let that sink in. So you can. Once again, can you like, (laughs) let's make sure everybody understood. So you can go ahead and pay somebody to give you oral sex, anal sex, a whole lot of acts going on. Just, oh man, just make sure it's not heterosexual vaginal intercourse. (laughs) Because that is illegal to pay for that. There's got to be some some reasoning behind that, but that's of probably course. an entire podcast series right yeah, there. Seriously, uh, in India, prostitution is legal only if carried out in the private residence of a prostitute or others. So they're designating that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in this particular area. Right. And in the United States, it is illegal in all but one state, and we'll we'll circle back around to that a little bit later. Oh yeah, I'm sure people know, but place your bets now. Oh place your bets also associated (laughs) with that state. I thought it was very interesting for us to take a look at a little bit of language here. And this is heavily pulled from Dr. Lister's book on the curious history of sex to look at the origin of the word whore, because we hear this so much when people are talking about sex work. And it's very interesting to hear about where this term came from. So it has definitely been a term that has been used to shame and devalue sex workers, but there's a lot more to it. I mean, it's a matter of a thousand years of history of attempting to shame women with their sexuality for all sorts of different things. So hora is kind of the root word and several different dialects. The linguistic roots actually are for lover or to like. Many indigenous peoples have no word for whore or even prostitution or sex work. Therefore, it is not something that is seen as a universal word. When certain translations of certain texts were made in different languages, they had to create that word or leave it the same from wherever it was 
in a lot of indigenous areas. So in the 12th century, whore was a term for an unchaste woman, but not a sex worker. And in the 13th century, it was a term for a woman who simply had sex outside of her marriage. So you can kind of see this judgment to the word about the woman and her sexual activity, and it has zero to do with sex work. Shakespeare used it many times in his plays to basically it's, describe a sexually promiscuous woman. Tis a pity she's a whore. Oh, there you go. That's what we should title this episode. <laughs> in the 1600s, being called a whore could actually damage a woman's reputation and have such an impact on her marriage and financial or business opportunities that the perpetrator could be brought to court for slander. So it could, words were really damaging. And um, at that point, she could bring this guy into court or woman for that fact and say, hey, this is ruining my reputation. It's ruining my opportunity for business that people are seeing me as somebody who is sexually promiscuous. Let's do something about it. And the courts would hear those types of cases. And then, you know, all the way up into present time, I mean, world leaders have been called whores when some, I might say men, feel threatened <laughs> that these women are gaining too much power. So everybody from Margaret Thatcher to Hillary Clinton have been called whores when clearly there is no transactional sex happening or sex work implied. It's, again, a way to kind of use a very terrible world word to describe someone. Yeah, it, it connotes that there is a transaction going on that is less than appropriate or less than ethical. It's taken on this other kind of mean, like even the phrase whoring yourself out right. is so loaded. And what I would want to offer right there, especially, I mean, I'm not a fan of Margaret Thatcher at all. <laughs> She's <laughs> okay. really Hot ran the UK. Yeah. She really ran the UK into the ground, but I don't think that it's fair to have that kind of insult. I think it's right. for one thing, let's just stop using insults when there's no male equivalent that has the loaded weight of stigma and marginalization. And Ooh, great you know, point. there just isn't, you know, we call, we have terms for when we call women bitches and there's nothing really that holds the weight of that. Like a bastard doesn't hold no. the sort of vicious vindictiveness that the, the term bitch is supposed to hold. So yeah, I, I, I right. It's like a we go-to. It's like a go-to word instead of just calling her what he, what she is. Like maybe you think she's a shitty politician, or you know, but exactly. Why, why do you have to go towards these descriptors? And it's because historically, uh, we have learned that it holds a lot of weight in in shaming women and demeaning them in a way that was always matched to sexuality. There are derogatory terms throughout history the term whore has then been kind of flipped on its head and embraced by women to deflate the shame and bring back the power so whether it be in reference to your sexual practices or like challenging the man cardi b i'm looking at you very popular song all about whorism last year right it it can be flipped where it can be an endearing term that women start calling each other. I don't know. I, I've, I think I've seen it a lot in like um, media and entertainment too, or kind of the things that come to my head. I mean, I can't remember the last time I like referred to a friend as my whore that I was going out with to lunch or something like that. But 
it is something that has moved its way into vernacular as a way of women to be able to gain back the power, especially revolving around their sexuality and being allowed to behave in the way that they want to without the judgment. And there's been the, the gay male version of that is reclaiming the word fag or queer Sure. Or even for lesbians reclaiming the word dyke, that these were, you know, these were marginalizing and hateful terms that were used for, for a very long time. And I, I see that that movement is like this, this pushback with strength of like, I get to call myself that, but still, and, and I admire people that do that, but I, uh, you know, it's, it's challenging for me because I still get triggered by those particular words mm-hmm. for women. I'm very triggered by the word bitch. I, I just mm. do not like that word at all. And, but that's me, you know, I have to own my stuff in it. when, um, you know, I have a, a really good friend who's a mental health clinician. And when he's a little tipsy, he'll like, Hey faggot. And I'm like, Ooh, let's, let's, let's not do that. Let's just yeah. not, but I understand where he's coming from. Sure. Um, it's just not my preference to engage in that kind of banter. I, I can be pretty raw in other ways, but like not yeah. particularly that one. Yeah. Yeah. They all hit different with us. I think, um, as we talked about the term prostitute specifically, I mean, comes from the label of the crime prostitution. Um, and in that creates prejudice and this labeling aspect that we talked about, you know, we talked about headlines in news and labeling victims as prostitutes. And I think that really creates a buffer so that, women who aren't engaging in sex work, you know, we can feel like, oh, I'm a little safer because that's not me. Like it creates this us versus them against the quote unquote normal woman and the sex worker. But the person who coined the term sex worker was named Carol Lee, AKA the Scarlet Harlot in the eighties. And she said that the usage of the term sex work marks the beginning of a movement it acknowledges the work we do rather than defines us by our status. I love that. Yes, me too. All right, let's jump into some history. We're going to go all the way back to the ancient world and talk about sex work, which surprisingly, the people who write about this say it is not the oldest profession. <laughs> any any guesses to what maybe the oldest profession is? You know, I'm looking here at the notes and I'm not going to give it away. I like, I'm actually astounded that I fell for that sort of trope as well. Well, it's interesting. Because it's a margin, it's a marginalizing trope, right? It's like, well, let's, let's find another way to, you know, kind of put the beat down on women and like, oh, you know, I always go back to Piper Laurie in the movie Carrie. You know, she's beating. She space. just quote her last. I know. Episode. I always do. <laughs> They're all going to laugh at you. But she's like, you know, beating Carrie with a, a, her Bible and saying Eve was weak. Eve was weak. Because mm. it always comes back to this Judeo-Christian. Yeah. You know, we don't really see a lot of the kind of same shaming prior to the influence of exactly. the very, very puritanical view of Christianity that actually was not there at the beginning and sort of right. put on by the, the Catholic Church. Exactly. And, um, you know, it really, I mean, people agree that probably medicine is the oldest profession and specifically midwifery. So we've been having babies for a very long time. Someone's got to be there to coach us through it or catch the kid or help. Right. So this makes sense. However, 
they do acknowledge that it might be the oldest form of currency. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, like I said, very little evidence of sex trade in indigenous communities. And it was not until Europeans arrived, aka once money is introduced, that you start seeing sex trade pop up. And interestingly, in experiments where they would give monkeys tokens as commerce, like coins, stop. What? You can laugh into the mic. Oh, yeah. I'm serious. So where did you run, find this? Let's run an experiment. This this is from I think this is from the book. Okay. As soon as they start giving monkeys coins to use to trade, they immediately start trading coins for sex. I mean, they get right to it. What do I have? How can I get more coins? Here well, it is. Now I know what my sock monkey is doing all day while I'm at work. <laughs> that's that's why he's in a different position every time you come home. That's why he paid my sister to make him a smoking jacket out of my old duvet cover. I'm oh convinced. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, from a, a sociological perspective, negative attitudes towards selling sex, sex are really culturally determined. So yet again, you know, Europeans bring in their, uh, their attitudes bringing their money and bringing their attitudes about sex trade to other populations. Here we go. Um, and like you said, the religious views and impact, of course, that all mushes together into starting to see sex trade happen, but then quickly criticizing and punishing that. Right. So, I mean, it's interesting too, from the Judeo-Christian perspective that there's a lot of controversy about what the actual real definition in Aramaic of the term virgin actually means. And there's a lot of argument today that the term virgin meant that they had not, that the, the woman had not had sex within the confines of marriage yet. So she's a virgin until she has had sex after marriage. And what came before that was not thought of as important in any way. And at least that's one of the theories. I don't know sure. how much um, research is behind that, but I find it huh. very interesting. It now, what we do know about the research going back into ancient Greece, uh, Aphrodite was the goddess of fertility, love, and joy. And it was noted that brides would prostitute themselves to bring luck to their marriage. And the money that was brought in would be able to support the purchase of a trousseau and all the things needed to set up a home that would be earned in what was called sacred prostitution. So that which was earned through sacred prostitution would be considered even more valuable than a common one. So by providing love and pleasure in the name of the goddess, these brides would attract happiness and lux to themselves. Now within the temple itself, in the priestess's case, uh, sex could be seen as one of many forms of worship to the Aphrodite, Venus, Militha, depending on the place or the name of the deity changes, but the characteristics are really pretty similar and pretty much the same across that portion of the world. And this is why many of the academics don't particularly see this type of sexual interaction as a business interaction. Um, they're not really saying that it's an exchange of body for money because it would, which is kind of, that's the basic definition, right? Sure. But instead they see it as a form of worship. So the temple of Aphrodite would require priestesses to engage in sex with visitors to the temple. It became a, I guess, a version of sex tourism for the time. Mm -hmm. So although, and looking back at this, I'm not sure, 
I don't know if it would meet today's standards of coercion, because if you were going to be a priestess of Aphrodite, this would be expected. I, I don't have enough historical context on that, but I do yeah. find it fascinating. And who knows? I mean, if there's actually even enough real extant data to pull and find out if this is really the truth or if the the truth of what happened in those types of situations is lost to history. So none of this was actually ever proven. There were writings by Herodotus, but Herodotus was never actually proven to be a real writer or if he was the collection of a number of writers that were attributed to him. So sacred prostitution today is really one of the primary debates in the history of Greek and Roman religions. One thing to note, though, when we since we're back here, since we're all the way back here several thousand years, <laughs> is that even in a, a non-Judeo-Christian culture, looking at the Greco-Roman background, even then, we're already starting to see a change in how women are viewed to be marginalized because many of the mythological monsters that are the most well-known in Greek mythology are portrayed as women and they are the most frightening. The, the male monsters are just big brutes with somewhat magical powers, but it's usually just massive strength. And whereas you see the female monsters being much more supernaturally oriented. So when I say supernaturally, that means that they're going to be less understood by the men. And so many of the myths are about men going out on the quest to kill these vicious monsters. So once again, historically, another culture that's doing what it can to marginalize women. Yes. And even in the the code of Hammurabi, so the the Babylonian laws that were codified, they offered rights and protection to the sex workers of the towns. So for instance, it talked about how the man, should he have a child with a prostitute, how he should compensate her, how much food he was going to give her, how much oil he was going to give her. Um, And also said like, okay, this does not afford her the right to live in his home with his wife, but he's going to provide some support. There was also um, an ancient Indian text that laid out legal protection for sex workers, including they actually had a superintendent of courtesans and sex work was regulated by the state. They paid taxes each month and their word for prostitute translated to quote, one who sells her beauty. I love so, that. I know. So and I love I. Cortis- I also love Cortison. I didn't even think about that. Like superintendent of court. I what love a that. title, right? If I, I mean- was a sex worker, which believe me, I'm long past any, <laughs> anybody worth wanting to buy this. Wanting to buy your beauty? <laughs> I think I would like to be a courtesan. Yes. Yes. I know. Does it have a nice ring to it? I mean, it makes me think of Moulin Rouge, but. Again, we're going to talk about how Hollywood shapes our views of sex workers, too. (laughs) He has a ginormous talent. Okay, sorry. Reel it back in, Shiloh. Um, There are some references. I I think this is kind of going back to sacred prostitution as well, but some references in the Old Testament to temple girls or temple prostitutes, both male and female. That's what I was talking about earlier, yeah. Yeah, like you're saying, it's really disputed through translation possibly and or is this storytelling or is this historical so we can only know yeah it's hard to tell but it's interesting i think you know if somebody has some more detailed research company archaeology experts or anthropology experts out there please let us know Mm -hmm. 
Yes. So let's jump to the 1800s and actually what sparked my interest, this weird article, which was just a little tidbit of everything that we're talking here today that sparked my idea for this episode. So, you know, Degas, right? Edgar Degas, French impressionist painter, one of my favorites. You don't ever get into a ballet studio without there being a couple of Degas lithographs, you know, or posters somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Famous for his, for painting and sculpting ballerinas. There is a ton of his work at the Norton Simon Museum in Pasadena. My favorite, used to be my favorite place to go and hang out when I was in grad school because it was free for students and it wasn't that far from my school. And so if I had a class canceled, I would jet up there and study in their garden or go walk around. That is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite paintings, um, of his, I have in my dining room. Um, so Degas famous for his, his ballerina art. And I stumbled upon this article about ballerinas in France at that time and how sex work really was a part of their reality as well. And specifically in the Paris Grand Opera House, Palais Garnier, um, was actually, they say designed with this in mind. Oh my gosh. So they had a very luxurious room located behind the stage called the foyer de la danse which was where um basically a place where they could go they could warm up before performances but afterwards it sort of served as this men's club so the men who were proprietors or you know contributing to the opera house and the performances these wealthy french men would, could wander there backstage afterwards and socialize, maybe conduct some business, but also proposition these ballerinas. And it is incredibly problematic for a lot of reasons. Sometimes these ballerinas were very young. A lot of them, especially the, the ballerinas in training, which they called the petite rats, were girls that came from working class or impoverished backgrounds. And so they were joining the ballet to support their families, you know, work six days a week. I can imagine if you're trying to feed your family through this, that you probably feel the pressure to participate in this sex work that's going on behind the stage as well. They were really expected to submit to the affections of these subscribers, frequently encouraged by their own mothers to sort of fan the flames of male desire, you know, maybe this will help you get a bigger part, maybe, you know, blah, 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 how it all goes. And it's really interesting because this article points out that if you look in kind of the background of some of Degas paintings, you often see a man with a top hat, hat, kind of a shadow figure backstage. And this was his representation of these men that would be wandering backstage afterwards, sort of waiting for these girls. Oh. Um, so it's, isn't it's, it fascinating? Just like how it just completely changes your view of what the art actually means. I know. You know, well, here we are like, I mean, I remember that my, the ballet studio I started in always had like, you know, a couple of cheap Degas, gorgeous. you know, they're beautiful artwork. And now that to see the dark side of it, the other thing too, is like always kind of, I got to do my gay thing and go to, to musicals is like I grew up with sort of the classic canon of musicals. You think about 
um, A Little Night Music or Oklahoma or West Side Story and Gigi. You know, Gigi with the the famous song, Thank Heaven for Little Girls. And then you get to a point where you realize like, oh, she's a, she's a child. She's being groomed to be a mistress and a sex worker and a courtesan. And like, oh, I want to enjoy this musical. And now I'm like a little creeped out. I know. Well, and Degas was kind of had a reputation for being pretty horrible to the ballerinas, like making them hold their positions for so long and he kind of referred to them as his little dancing monkeys so you know he could paint and sculpt them and I'm sure they weren't getting any kickbacks for them. yeah but the idea also that like you know being trained as a dancer is for one thing it's an amazing amazing but very short career but the way you're viewed is as if you're like this precious talented but ultimately sort of because it's about our bodies, like every, because we're so puritanical is like, we sexualize everything about dance, which is so unfair. Like we can, we need to be able in our cultures to separate sexuality from sensuality yes, and respect that and not make, you know, really sort of overarching and blanket assumptions about anyone who pursues that particular art form. Sure. Another thing about Degas, the ballerinas, is that at the time the lighting was so primitive, it was all gas lamps on stage and they were wearing crinoline tutus. There were tons of uh, ballerinas that just died in fires all oh, over holy Europe. Shit. Yeah. Jesus. Very sad. Like, and wow. you'd be in the audience and you'd be watching a ballerina like burning on stage. It's very sad. Well, there was even mention of, uh, that's horrific, um, mention of, you know, when the ballerinas came out, when they performed during an opera, it was usually like kind of an interlude or when they were changing scenery and things like that, there would be this um, performance by the ballerinas. And it really turned into kind of this lurid, like, oh, here, let's look at these young girls wearing really short skirts, you know, showing their full leg, which wasn't happening in the rest of the opera oh, or the art form or out on the street scandalous. for that matter. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I just think of all these, you know, men in the audience drooling over them and waiting for it to end so they could go backstage. Time to go take a shower. All right. Um, So up to the, in the 1900s in America, sex work has uh, been very short and sweet um, in terms of, especially like legality in 1928 actually new orleans limited prostitution to a certain area in the city uh an area which they called storyville so this was basically the only legal red light district that ever existed in the united states and it lasted until after the war when federal the federal government started outlawing like they said no more red light districts close to a military base but basically it was this little area of town that had clubs and had brothels and really had some savvy female business owners who were very, very successful and got very wealthy off of this. But that did not last long. And as of today, Nevada, not Las Vegas, but many counties in Nevada is the only place in the United States where sex work is legal. And it's been that way since 1971. So, so interesting. I mean, the, the the historical context for America is very, is just fascinating. And I would also say if anybody's a fan of 
a movie that can be seen as problematic today, certainly because it's romanticizing the um, antebellum South, which is Gone with the Wind. I mean, Gone with the Wind is sort of part of our literature canon, Mm -hmm. but it's problematic in the way it romanticizes the, the former Southern parts of the U.S. and normalizes slavery and, you know, and also the way it portrays um, people of color. That's problematic. I would say what is fascinating, though, about the novel and the movie is how it portrays the madam at one of the brothels in Atlanta. Her name is Belle Watlings, and she sort of becomes the trope in Hollywood, or that character becomes the trope of the the hooker with the heart of gold. Mm -hmm. So here's this Mm -hmm. supposedly tainted woman that actually, especially in Gone with the Wind, is besides the character of Melanie is one of the kindest, most compassionate people in the story. Everybody else is arrogant and vain. And here's Melanie on one side, the sickly white woman who is very kind and compassionate. And then you have this sort of blowsy, blonde, very powerful woman. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting juxtaposition in the story that I think a lot of people don't really get. So that's if you're watching the movie next time, look for her interactions. Oh, I will. And tidbit, yeah. the gay bar we all went to in college in Birmingham, Alabama was Belle Watlings. <gasps> very cool. That's very cool. And it's not as if prostitution or brothels didn't exist. Of course, like you can't watch a cowboy movie without there being a brothel and a madam, right? But, and really, especially on the West Coast, those were... Those existed and were very prevalent during the mining days, during the gold rush, you know, the 1800s when that was all happening, because you just had these towns popping up with money. And again, here we, here we have the, the commerce piece coming into it and, um, you know, people taking advantage of that and selling what they have. Yeah. Selling what you have. And sometimes it's a matter of survival and that continues today in different parts of the world. And volunteered, you know, non-coercive sex work can exist in the same milieu as coercive sex trafficking of children. And that's problematic. But, um, you know, laws vary around the world about that. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.